frequent listeners to my or readers of my material. This podcast episode will be uh, very familiar. You might not get much out of it. I recorded it specifically for one person. Thank you for listening. Hello all and Shavua Tov. I attended an interesting shiur this past Shabbat. In it, the speaker was talking about chukim and mishpatim. In modern English, we translate these words as statutes and laws. In long-standing rabbinic tradition, chukim are beyond understanding, while mishpatim are laws that can be understood. The rabbi giving the shiur was claiming that chukim are understandable, but that understanding has essentially been lost to time. The meaning is there, but they are made distinct by the loss of understanding. I have a slight problem with this perspective. How, after all, were the chukim lost to time, but the mishpatim were not? To put it another way, did God plan that these specific laws would have their purpose lost to us, but that other laws would not? Now, I think the distinction is somewhat different. As frequent readers and listeners of my material know, I believe chukim are differentiated by their purpose, not the state of our understanding of them. Mishpatim have a direct effect on the world, a normal, human, measurable effect. Chukim, on the other hand, are inherently symbolic. They are a way of speaking and expressing a holy language through the use of a physical medium. I don't think this rabbi would find that controversial. What he might find controversial is that this language is relatively simple and something that we can easily understand today. To borrow the Torah's words, it is not in heaven or beyond the sea. In fact, I believe that our attempts to understand it through the combined lenses of Hellenistic, medieval, Renaissance, and Enlightenment thought have been doomed by those lenses. We have obscured what is obvious, and thus we celebrate that which is mystical. I think we actually enjoy the mystery more than we do the resolution of it. As I understand it, the Torah has running through it a singular logic. Hashem creates for six days, that is good. The things that are not good are heaven, Shabbat, night, and man. They are specifically those things that are not creative. He then rests on the seventh day, making it holy. The world ceases changing, and we have an opportunity for a relationship with the timeless God. That is holiness. Goodness and holiness never intersect in the Torah. The closest they come is in the building of the Mishkan with a reference to holy work. Everything is about us using goodness and distancing ourselves from the evil of destruction in order to experience holiness. We walk in the path of Hashem. The way I read it, when it says you work for six days and rest on the seventh, both parts are commandments. You plant for six years and let the land rest on the seventh. Both parts are commandments. We work the garden and we guard it. To quote the Chumash, Hashem put us in Gan Eden, Avda. So how does the holy language of Chukim play into this? Well, every color, every material, every animal, every word has a representative meaning. Every shape and dimension can be derived and can be understood. I'm not speaking about theoretical ideas. The glossary of physical terms can be understood now. I've actually written one. It's not very long. We just have to open our eyes to it. Yes, we can delve far beyond these concepts, but these concepts and these languages, these words, these physical words remain constant. I'll give a classic example. Para Aduma, the red heifer. I'm not going to go into all the ingredients in the entire process, although they are also clear. I'll stick with the top level. A bull represents a nation, 
This is why we offer 70 bulls in Sukkot. This sort of intersection of bull and nation was very common in ancient times. The 12 tribes offered 12 young bulls, because in a way, they represent 12 young nations. The theme touches the Egel, Paro's dreams, and more. But it isn't quite that simple. Because this is not just a bull, this is a para, this is a female cow. So there are three ways in which gender, using the old definition, is used to classify things in Torah. The first of these, and the most primary, the most fundamental, is biological. A man has positive reproductive will. He can force himself on an unwilling woman or withdraw himself from a willing one. But no matter how much reproductive will he might have, he has no capability to actually give birth to a child. The female is actualization, potential. The male is will. Adam or mankind plants. Adama, the feminine, which means earth, is what yields crops. The male god creates the world, Elohim. The female god, Shekhinah, waits in the Mishkan, converting our willful offerings into spiritual reality. Combine these concepts in the Paraduma, the all-red female cow, represents unlimited national potential. This is why the animal can never be worked. None of its potential can be used. This is why it has to be completely red. No part of it can lack that intrinsic symbolic capacity. The animal is slaughtered, burned, and then mixed with water. As with osmosis, water is consistently the medium of spiritual renewal in the Torah. That water carries within it the symbolism of unlimited potential. Those who are exposed to death have been exposed to a loss of potential. They are sprinkled with this renewal of potential on the third and the seventh day. The third day is the first day of life in the creation of the world. The seventh day is when life gets purpose. And they are made pure once again. Their exposure to evil has been symbolically negated. Why is the person who kills and burns the animal then impure? Because they took a living animal, and for no reason other than the exposure of others to evil, they killed it. They experienced a loss of potential. They brought it about. And so they are made impure, even as those who are sprinkled with the ashes, the ashes made distanced by their processing from the loss of the animal itself, are renewed by that symbolic product of the animal. I'll give another simpler example. The Jewish people are often represented by goats. Goats are rambunctious and rebellious. My brother, my older brother, likes to say they represent deception as they are used to deceive Yitzchak. We sacrifice these two goats for Azazel. One goes to Yudke Vavke, the god of past, present, and future. The other goes to Azazel, literally the goat of disappearance. One becomes a part of forever, the other a part of for never. That is our message on Yom Kippur. We are rambunctious. We can be deceptive and we can either be a part of forever or we can disappear as if we never existed. Again, it goes deeper than that. There are more other elements of the ritual. There's other aspects of the language being spoken, but that is the core concept. I sometimes can't stop myself, so I'll give a few more. On Rosh Hashanah, we establish a core of offerings that follows us to other holidays. Ayelachad, Ben Bakar, Sheva Kvasim. A ram, a young bull, and seven lambs. Why? The ram represents fear of Hashem and is offered to the Akedah. It also represents Hashem Zocher, or remembrance of covenants. He couldn't allow Yitzchak to be killed because he had established a divine contract with Avraham. This is why we read the story of Ishmael's rescue on Rosh Hashanah. Hashem had promised Avraham Ishmael would be rescued, and so he had to be. The Ben Bakar is what Avraham offers when the Miraglim come to tell Sarah she will have a child. She deserved the child. She pakotted the child to mix grammars. 
She was justly rewarded for her righteousness. We also read this on Rosh Hashanah. On Yom, on Rosh Hashanah. Finally, the Shevach Fasim are what Avimelech offers with Avraham when he recognizes that Hashem is with Avraham. He recognizes the error of his ways. He may not have a perfect tshuva, but it's still a process of tshuva. And so the Shevach Fasim represent tshuva. And we also read this story on Rosh Hashanah. It all wraps together. We bring offerings of tshuva, pakad, and zocher, the three paths to blessing. And we read stories that bring those animals as examples. The representations are consistent. A will offering must be male. It can be hard to tell a male doe from a female one. So we rip out the crop and the entails, the potentially female parts. Why do we only offer doves? Because they're the only kosher bird that produces milk for its young. They are physiologically dedicated to their young after birth. They are thus holy by virtue of their physiological programming that connects to the future. They reach in their way, in their symbolic language way, for the timeless. The Mishkan continues with the simplicity. We use physical forms to speak of spiritual language. Parshat Mishpatim, which defines our core legal laws, our core legal set, has 53 human-enforced laws at the beginning of the Parsha and 56 potential outcomes. They represent the Mamlachat Kohanim, the kingdom of priests with laws. They give structure to our reality, and the Mishkan has 53 inner pillars and 56 exterior ones. The pillars represent law and Mamlachat Kohanim. Agoy, on the other hand, is far more formless. It has no shape. It's not well-defined. Kadosh itself is infinity, and it's hard for us to put our fingers on. The curtains are inherently floppy. They have no form. They represent the Goy Kadosh. They have Kruvim, timeless angels, on them. Put these two together, the pillars and the curtains, and you have a physical representation of the Jewish people, Mamlechet Kohanim and Goy Kadosh. Hashem says he wants to dwell within the people. So what goes on, what goes inside this building? Representations of Hashem's revelations. The menorah burns and is never consumed. It is the sneh. The showbread represents Hashem showing himself to the people through the man. The table represents the elders eating at Hashem's table. The Aaron represents Harsinai. Hashem's representations literally dwell within the representation of the people. Again, it goes much further. Every material choice and dimension speaks a simple language and reinforces these messages. The rabbi brought up Tzitzit. His explanation was a good one, but it missed a bit. Tachelet, I believe, is the color of the sky. There's nothing dead in the sky. Dead birds fall. So the sky represents purity, tahor, a place without loss. The mitzvah of Tzitzit is given in the immediate aftermath of the sin of the spies. The people saw themselves as grasshoppers, as homeless, nomadic nobodies in the face of the great midot of the resident of the land. Nothing is more constant in our lives than clothing, not even food. The tzitzit are given the immediate aftermath of the spies in order to tell us that we aren't nobodies, to transform our midot. They are a constant reminder that we are God's pure people, and so long as we have a relationship with Hashem, we will never be grasshoppers. In fact, it is meant as a lesson to the children, as the parents will die and pass on the dream and the mission. Tzitz also means blossom. This form of the word is used in Parshat Korach, which comes up right afterwards. This constant thread represents the first step of the future, the path of future purity and of a future without loss and destruction. Of course, again, as listeners and readers know, it goes further, but the essence remains in the 
the, the, the words and the grammar of the language stay constant. This language is not complex. It is not meant to be hidden or difficult. From Surat to Korbanot, it is all there. It explains Chagim, Arbataminim, the Omer, and even the lack of symbols on Shemini Hatzeret. It doesn't just apply to the mitzvot, though. Yosef's dreams have alternative interpretations, and we can learn from what Yosef does and does not say. The plagues bring messages, clear messages. The almond tree in Parsha Korach is laden with so many layers of symbolism, and they stretch throughout the Chumash. Sometimes it even shows up on the physical page. Look at Azyashir. It is ASCII art, with waters on the side and the people in the middle. We know it because many representations or writings of it have a final line that has two breaks in it. At either end of the line are the words Yam for sea on the two sides. And in the middle it says, and the people of Israel traveled in the midst of. It's telling us it's ASCII art, but we don't see it anymore. We miss the obvious language. In fact, I believe there's only one commandment that is meant as a classical chok, that is meant as something we just respect and do even though we don't understand it, and that is shatness. It is in a collection of laws and devarim and the specific section of those laws into which it has been placed are laws of neighborly consideration. For me, the message is this. We must let Hashem have his space. We must remember that there are boundaries. This chok exists for precisely the reason ascribed to other chukim, because we need that lesson too. We can understand things, though, on the simple physical level. We use the physical to speak a spiritual language. As we move beyond the top-level sentences of paraduma and into the individual clauses, what does the cedar represent? What does the hyssop represent? We can deepen our understanding of the truth the Torah is teaching us to speak. It is all there. There is more, there's always more. There's tension between the divine and the human, which I've been fond of writing about for the past few years. There's the development of responsibility and the displays of human archetypes. There's the exploration of failure and the paths of redemption. But it can all be understood through the simple spiritual language of physical symbolism. So what of our rabbinic mitzvot? Well, as I told the rabbi, I'm no expert on halacha, but I tend to find that what we actually do is perhaps unwittingly, an expression of the same language. As a great example, the species we use for the Arbataminim perfectly capture and enhance the meaning intrinsic in the biblically identified species. We say Shabbat Shalom and Shavuot Tov, capturing the difference between the godly week of creation and the day of rest, and so on and so forth. My understanding breaks down when I step into Halakha. I don't have a great understanding of it. But when I do explore it, I tend to find that it is a reflection of these biblical ideas, even if I don't always understand the connections. In fact, even if those who maintained and derived the laws might have been themselves wearing Greek or Islamic or medieval eye shades and have had a hard time seeing the connection themselves. I believe the halakha has carried forward these messages, even if we have a hard time seeing it, and those who saved it for us had a hard time as well. So thank you, Rabbi, for your talk. I enjoyed it very much. I just think we might be far closer to the understanding you spoke of than even you yourself seem to realize. So thank you for listening, and perhaps we'll be able to speak again in the future. Finally, once again, Shavuot Tov.